0: keeping focus and really understanding when to get in and when to get out, when to go long, long-term charters, when to go short, stay spot. These were these some fairly simple rules that I followed. A lot of money resulted. Obviously, when I sold it, it was emotionally quite uh, dramatic. But, you know, if, if you are an investor and you become emotionally detached to your assets, you're probably in Ship Creek.
1: That was professor and doctor Peter LaRange. Peter has been regarded as one of the world's foremost business school academics, and his entrepreneurial journey spans across areas such as education, shipping, investments, and family businesses. In this episode, Peter gives an insight into his own journey and lessons others can learn in order to succeed in research, business, and entrepreneurship. All opinions expressed by Christophe Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Bin. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christophe Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Welcome back, everyone. I'm very excited to be joined by Peter. And Peter, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, I,
0: I'm very happy to be part of this uh, discussion too. So thank you very much for, for organizing this, Christopher.
1: Can we just start with the recent news about the LaRange Network? Because obviously you have been building this great organization and it looks like you made a very important deal just recently. Can you quickly explain the concept of the network and what happened? Yeah,
0: uh, what, what, uh, what happened is I started the LaRange Network roughly uh, three and a half years ago. And uh, you know the idea was to try to have various webcasts discussing uh, critical investment issues, focusing particularly on family business, family-owned businesses, independent investors, family-owned businesses. And uh, again, we have we, the network, is uh, the web, web, web-based network is still small. It's only 3,500 members, but uh, these are people that I want to have there. So... The, the aim is not to make this a huge network, but to have it high quality network. So I, I kind of uh, came to realize I'm now 78, that uh, perhaps it would be time to, to let somebody else take over. And for a while I thought maybe that might be my family, my son, son-in-law. But the more I thought about it, uh, and I spoke with members of the network, uh, the more I realized that uh, they, they were interested in, in my views and uh, uh, if not my views they were interested in uh, reputable organizations such as IMD where you have a group of say 70 professors who are all most of them at least are more or less cutting edge and uh, so I initially thought that uh, maybe Maybe I would sell this network to say a a bank or somebody like that, but uh, I got quite a lot of resistance from the members when they came to that. They said, we are not here to uh, be members of the network and then you simply turn around and uh, and then kind of cash in on us. So so I ended up selling it for a much lesser price than I elsewise would. It was emotional kind of hard to to in a sense give it up you know i spent quite a lot of time and energy to build this up and i'm in good health and all of that but still being 78 i have to realize that you know, things are uh, probably coming to an end within not too long so to speak
1: very interesting if we can just talk at network as a broad concept i mean it's been a buzzword, I don't know for how many years, right? You need to be good at networking. You need a good network, et cetera. But giving your, I mean, your life experience, et cetera, can you just paint the picture of how important it is to have, to be mindful of the network you're building, especially if you're an entrepreneur or an academic person or a business person, how important is it to have focus on your network, right?
0: Well, I, I, I think you could look at that from various angles. Uh, if, you, if you think about it in terms of uh, or, old type organizations, uh, it's businesses or even business schools, whatever, you could take university terms or so whatever. The problem with those places is that they are full of expensive buildings and they are oodles of very expensive professors and assistants and secretaries, what have you. So the costs of running these places are enormous. Uh, So if you take, uh, for instance, uh, the Laurent Institute, which I built up and subsequently sold to the Chinese, uh, I was able to provide uh, top quality educational services by asking the professors to come in when I wanted them. And, and I was able to, should we say, uh, uh, let people learn via the web, like we are working on now, and not necessarily sit in expensive classrooms that were used maybe three or four times per week, or maybe three or, time, three or four hours per day at the best. So So, so I was able to demonstrate to myself that, uh, you know, through networking, as opposed to classical hierarchical stuff, I could dramatically reduce the costs. And of course, that's what I then did once even more, even once more, with uh, the building up the Lorange network, which is in essence of, in a sense, a modern version of uh, a business school but it costs a fraction. But the reason I, I'm able to do that is through networking, contacts, etc. And that brings me to, should we say, the philosophy of a networker. I think it has a lot to do with listening and mutual respect as opposed to command and control. Uh, so, so, you know, it means that people are willing to work with you because you listen to them and you respect them. Uh, I know that you interviewed a good friend of mine, Martin Ostrup, and he understands, after I told him that, told, not good, after we discussed, uh, that it's a matter of respecting and working with the best based on that. But networking is, in a sense, being able to link up with the best listening to them, treating them with respect, and in that sense, let the network grow. And then you also have the benefits, not only of the quality of the stuff being better, but also that the costs are in control.
1: Can we, Since we mentioned higher education, can we just immediately address the elephant in the room? So if you look at the higher education price index in US, so I started at UC Berkeley for a, a brief period, and Exactly to your point, there are expensive buildings to be maintenance, right? And they're pretty from the outside, but once you get in them, it's like, okay, fine, right? The chairs aren't that good, but it looks good from the outside. How do we solve this price index, which is terrible for the next generation who needs to take great loans in order to have a couple of classes at the campus, right? It doesn't seem right, at least.
0: No, no, I fully agree with you. And uh, in a sense, I, I'm perhaps not the right person to talk about that, but uh, since I have been heading up uh, several of these, uh, these places in, in, in Norway, Francis Bay, and uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Switzerland, IMD. But, and both of them have, are full of buildings and professors by, should we say, embracing the modern reality, which is uh, computers, computer-based networks. And and you and I are talking together now, why couldn't this be the way we learn? And uh, and, uh, I think, I do think that maybe some blended learning is is the future, that there is a room for sitting down, face-to-face listening, interacting, (laughs) but that would mean that the schools are no longer run as, uh, should we say, lecturing, lecture places but as long weekend seminars, where you have small groups of people sitting together in in flat rooms, as opposed to the uh, sleeping dormitoriums, uh, which are, uh, you know, with reclining walls and reclining roofs, the floors, and uh, where you sit and sleep and all of that. But but when you sit down around the round tables and, and listen to everybody else in the best sense of networking and and where the professor is more of a, should we say, a conductor and somebody who also learns rather than somebody who rattles off some piece of nonsense that he or she has done for 20 years and uh, there's nothing new in it. You know, learning is a matter of, uh, should we say, experiencing. It's a matter of uh, interaction. It's a matter of testing out how others in the network react to what you say, things like that. And uh, and so I think that if you believe in that, you can then have physical learning activities over the weekends, uh, coupled with uh, stringent learning via the web uh, during the week. And you can learn very, very well perhaps even better than in the past, why do you keep your full-time job? And, and that's, I think, the future.
1: Isn't one of the problems that higher education is almost like a monopoly and a too good of a business to stop?
0: Well, it's worse than that You ask me. You go, you are in terms. So now you told me, just walk over and talk with the professors, you know? oh, it's so important what they do, research and this and that. By the way, the professors, uh, they are so busy doing research that they cannot even teach. Obviously, teaching and research go together in a a healthy networked reality. Uh, But these people are on cloud nine. They are paid by the government, taxpayers, the socialistic taxpayers, the, the, the socialistic regime. With the Norwegian pa- taxpayers backing them, and they are they are uh, very happy keeping keeping things the way it is. The fact is, though, so, and you know very well that if you if you take the rankings of higher education the institutions of higher education, not that the rankings are the panacea to everything, but you can still not avoid seeing that. Norwegian higher education institutions have been on the slide. If you, if you go some 70, 80 years ago, Norwegian Technical School in Trondheim was one of the best in Europe. Today they're not even ranked. They, by the way, they are now part of a mediocre university in Trondheim, which, uh, which uh, the socialist Guten Harness organized. And uh, if you take Norgens uh, Handelseskolen uh, where I studied, uh, it's on cloud nine. The professors there have a good time doing esoteric research. Nobody else benefits from this. Uh, this is just a, an expensive exercise, uh, leading to nonsense uh, results. And, uh, and it's again, The quality of it all is getting worse and worse. In my opinion, if you look at the top-notch places today, I mean, let me just drop off a few. Like here in Switzerland, you have Eidgenossen Technische Hochschule and its sister organization EPFL in Lausanne. They are ranked among the top five or six in Europe in technical universities, and maybe in the world. And if you take IMD, we are. I'm saying we, I used to be head of that for 15 years. We may we rank among the four or five best business schools in the world. If you take uh, MIT or Wharton or Harvard, I've been associated with all three, you know, you see that the professors are very much part of this real world. They're working on the real problems, uh, their research and the teaching go hand in hand. These are not people who are, should we say, too important to teach. On the contrary, they see these as, uh, should we say, network activities that uh, you cannot cut off parts of it and think that you are more relevant by only doing esoteric research. So if you, if you look at these top institutions, which are, uh, should we keep, say, keep division one rankings, they, they are very different than what you typically find in, in, as far as I can understand in the Norwegian institutions of higher education.
1: Let's be very practical. So if you're listening to this conversation and are in your 20s or if you have a child who is in that age, what's the best advice in terms of higher education? And I think it's very important to separate doctors, lawyers, where you need to have sort of like a law or a sort of like teaching. You have to be in school in order to To have your professional be able to do it let's separate that from the business world right because in business you can pretty much do whatever you want if you're driven smart and talented right
0: yeah well let's stick to business education and and as you know you have uh, when i was growing up and i got a reasonably good uh, exam i basically had three choices i could be a medical doctor And if so, I would study at the University of Oslo, Faculty of Medicine, or I could go to the the Technical University in Trondheim, or I could go to Neuvis School. If I'd went anywhere else, I would have, in a sense, wasted my good uh, action. So, it was very much a reputation-driven reality. I happened to end up at the Norwegian School of Economics and Business. And and in a sense, at that time, if you studied there and graduated from there, the difficult thing was to get in, by the way, uh, not to get through. And and, um, then you were guaranteed a job for the rest of your life. I think reality today is very different. Today, it's a matter of really trying to learn, 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 and and learn to become smarter. And, and, and in a sense, the reputational part of learning, picking places which have high reputation, is no longer so critical. At least at the undergraduate level. I, I understand that if you go for an MBA or a doctorate or something, it may make a difference. And Then you're better off going to the IMDs or the, the Harvard Business School or things like that. You mentioned Berkeley. But uh, undergraduate, I think it's a matter of trying to learn in a way that you, you become smarter. And I think this blended learning that you discussed has, has a lot of potential for that.
1: I couldn't agree more. And what I really like about your career is that you're obviously a proven academic and professor, but you're also a business person and an art collector. But is it okay to for you to spend maybe five minutes on shipping because you have a great story on shipping and you're passionate about it? Can you explain the the story on how you got involved in a specific company and how you turned it around and made a profit of it? Because we have many listeners who really love shipping.
0: Well, thank you. No, uh, listen, I I have uh, people have been working on shipping. Issues in my family for several generations, so I've been involved in that. Uh, I took over a a small shipping company from a a cousin of my mother, Mr. Sam Sam Ugusta. At that time, when I took over Es Ugusta ships, there were two small ships in the company, supply ships, and a bundle of debts. So, de facto, I took over half a ship. So what I then did was to spend uh, five years uh, buying out uh, the other shareholders. I took over around, roughly 50% of the company from my, my uh, previous owner. And then I bought out the others over so the next five years while the asset value was still low. And then I built it up. And uh, of course, shipping, as far as I can understand, is all about about timing. So I bought them, bought the ships secondhand mostly at the, when the market was down. And then others sold, I bought. And then I sold it at top. So when I sold the shipping company, uh, I, it was quite big. I think we had 10, 15 ships. And uh, again, uh, I was very focused by the way. I was strictly in the offshore supply ship area. I stayed away from, I, I did some diversification and lost a lot of money on that. Well, carriers, tankers, chemicals, reefers, which have since gone out. But, but the point is keeping focus and really understanding when to get in and when to get out, when to go long, long term charters, when to go short, stay spot. These were these some fairly simple rules that I followed. A lot of money resulted. Obviously, when I sold it, it was emotionally quite uh, dramatic. But, you know, if, if you are an investor and you become emotionally detached to your assets, you're probably in ship creek. You have to always be willing to sell to, to, uh, to should we say, cash in. I was equally emotionally slightly distressed when I sold the Laurent Institute to the Chinese. But in retrospect, thanks God, I did it. And uh, that's the way it is. So, so, but when when you sell things, in my opinion, never sell your name. So I've always kept uh, my name, Laurent, or or the Ubisoft name. my, my investment company now is Esu West. Cannot be traced back to me, which I also think is good, by the way. I am very glad that I'm not figuring in any of these ridiculous lists of the, the, the monthly magazine Capital, for instance. I have no interest in that. So, so stay neutral, stay below the radar, and, and it's too bad that I'm talking with you now. But Normally, I don't
1: do that. Just a final question, Peter. So if we forecast ahead, or if we look ahead, what is a future proven strategy for organizations, businesses? Because obviously you touched upon it that you need great leadership, but I mean, you work so much with research and your job is also to try to look into the future. What do you think are you know the future proof of success?
0: Well, uh, that's a key question. And... I mean, I've spent quite a lot of my life uh, working on various types of strategic models and things like that. I um, have unfortunately come to the conclusion that much of that classical, uh, should we say, uh, strategic uh, strategic dogmas uh, is not relevant. Uh, You have a SWOT analysis, you have market share, you have quarters, five forces, and God knows what you have or not. Uh, it's probably not all that relevant. You have strategic planning focusing on that. You could plan till you are green in your head, and you still are not making business. I think to develop, uh, should we say, in contrast, uh, should we say a uh, strategic culture it's much more important. And I'm just in the process of finishing a book on that, um, which is coming out, it's done. It's being edited right now. Sure. So, so, what, what, what I have, I have nine factors that I think are particularly important, and I don't want to rattle on all of those. But things like, uh, you know, speed, uh, ability to deal with risks, uh, ability to get in and out long short, cycle management, uh, ability to to network, ability to be should we say honest, uh, ability to not be too greedy, things like that, I think are much more fundamental in developing, a, should we say, a healthy strategic culture than uh, this dogma that we have been grappling with in, in, in much of business and much of academia for the last fifty years.
1: For people who want to learn more about your work, what's the best place to start? Is it to read your first book, your last book, your articles? Where do you send people who are listening right now and want to learn about this?
0: Uh, you will not like my answer to that, but I've read, I've written more than 30 books. I, I, I find them rather boring and I don't look at them again. But but for me, it's much more important to all the time ask, where am I now? And what am I looking forward to do? To look in the back mirror means very little to me. So if I were, if I were you or, or your readers or you listeners, I guess, um, I would look for this new book that's coming up a few months from now. Um, another book that you may be interested in is one that came out uh, at, uh, was published by IMD, all things. Uh, a few months ago, which has to do with new views on strategies for family businesses. I believe more and more, Christopher, that family business is more and more important. It allows you to think more long-term, uh, be more detached from the whims, whims of the stock market, uh, quarterly earnings, etc. You don't need to worry so much about that. So. So good strategies, I think, increasingly have to do with non-public companies. So you see that with Amazon.com so, and
1: etc. Uh, etc. Et also. It's a perfect ending, Peter. Thank you so much for joining. It was incredible to finally have you have you on the phone. If you like this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.